were, were not going to solve these problems on their own. In New South Wales, problems had begun appearing in the new land rights system within a few years. Funds that were supposed to be building an economic base for Aboriginal people were being used on community initiatives. I could see issues with governance. Most of the problems weren't from corruption, but from inexperience and lack of capacity. It was a huge lesson, lesson for me. It reshaped my entire thoughts about using land as a basis for Aboriginal prosperity. I realised that it wasn't enough for Aboriginal people just to have land. We needed to be prepared for what comes after that. We needed skills and experience in the private sector, in running businesses and in commerce. Now, we have land rights for nearly half a century and native title for probably 30 years. But for all that time, we talked about using land as a basis for economic prosperity and participation. Yet Indigenous Australians still live in poverty, asset rich and dirt poor. It's time to look at the structures that guard the Indigenous estate. And tonight, I'm joined by four terrific people to discuss this. We have Jacinta Price from the, the, the Centre for Independent Studies and newly elected Deputy Mayor of Alice Springs. Congratulations. Thank you, Warren. And we have Glenn Brennan, uh, of course, from KPMG, and, and James Williams, uh, James William, who is, a, is an experienced uh, uh, advisor to government in the private sector. And we're, and we're live streaming through my Facebook page and the goodsource.news website. Now, uh, Glenn, you know, you've been involved in this space for quite a while, um, and both as a banker and now as an, an advisor with uh, KPMG. Uh, just a thought about that. What, what's our next steps in regard to, uh, to ensuring that we've got economic prosperity and lifting our people out of poverty using that land base? Well, I think it's to your point, Warren. It's it's around the utilisation of the assets, right, and the assets and the utilisation. So when we're talking about that, there is the economic one. There's also the cultural one, which is also just as important. But I reckon where we need the spend to be in is, is around is building the capability of our mob, people that actually uh, take that aspiration to get into business and use the land for whether, you know, and, and I'm talking about potentially that capability development being much more than just um, having a native title agreement potentially with a resource company and getting a royalty payment. I think if we truly want to leverage the benefit of the Indigenous estate, we need to invest in our people so that they're able to run businesses, to utilise the assets and really take advantage of the Indigenous estate uh, much more proactively than potentially what we've seen in the past. All right, so James, you've been involved in a lot of this area as well, uh, and also uh, you bring a, a, a different perspective too, coming from the Torres Straits. Uh, so, so what do you think about this? Do we need to look at the, look at a, a different way of doing things, or do we need, do we need to build on what we've done, and uh, and ha and do we do, need to look at a, a, a reforming the architecture? Thank you, Warren. And look, I couldn't agree more with your opening remarks and also Glenn's. Um, I think, I, I mean, for me, honestly, I feel like we have to probably, you know, 
really rethink the entire piece. Um, doing the same things that we've always done, I, I doubt, I highly doubt that that's actually going to do any anything significant in terms of changing the what I'm now seeing, what it seems to be the orthodoxy. This is Indigenous affairs, and it's the the way that you sort of introduced the the, the discussion today. I think it typifies the sort of key challenges we have. And as Glenn talked about, the capability issue. But that's an issue that now, now it's institutionalized. And what we have is, um, and I suppose this is the, the, the argument that goes back to this issue around you know, in the indigenous estate, is that we've institutionalized the, the practice of asset managers. And that has laid priority over the interest of the owners. And so coming to your opening remark, you said, um, you said, uh, uh, was it asset rich, dirt poor? Yeah. So it's actually the asset managers that are actually leveraging the benefit, the full benefit out of managing the asset on behalf of those owners, but the owner themselves actually can't leverage it as owners and realise the real benefit flow from, from ownership. And ownership is not just about owning it on paper. It's about leveraging the asset and making it work the way it should because everyone who owns an asset, asset derives greater benefit from the asset than the person who manages it, except in Indigenous affairs. So I think what Glenn talked about, this capability problem, it's the fact that we don't prioritise it from a policy point of view. We don't start from the onset recognising that that's the asymmetry problem when it comes to strategy, is that from a strategy point, we liberate the opportunity in the market, then we give somebody else the right to manage it for someone else who doesn't have the capability to manage it. And then we say, and then we don't deal with the problem that the owner doesn't have the capacity to eventually take over that responsibility and, and manage it fully and realise its benefit. And so I think it's the great irony is that, in, as you know from industry, is that anyone successful in business actually not just not necessarily have to have all the technical skills in the world, but the behaviours and the attitudes is really about understanding what an owner is. And if you look at it in economic terms, there's probably three levels of mandate, and I call it from a human capital point of view. It's from people, you, you, you're a subject or a beneficiary, you benefit from someone else doing something on your behalf. And then eventually you learn to manage something on someone else's behalf. Someone else owns the asset, but you manage it. So that's a particular skill set you grow. And then eventually you may move up into owning assets in your life. And when you own the assets, you have to not only manage the asset or you can give someone else a responsibility to, to, to manage the asset. You also draw benefit from the asset. But the most important thing is that the asset, you manage it well so it's sustainable so that you don't actually lose the asset. And that's one of the big risk problems that we have from a human capital point of view that creates this notion that we've institutionalized the practice of people managing people or, or assets on their behalf is because we've never prioritized that owners should become fully, you know, invested in the whole process of, you know, their, what they own. Yeah. Uh, before I go on to Jacinda, I've got to say I like your T-shirt there, um, uh, James. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Jacinda, you're right in the middle of it. Aracoon. Oh, okay. Good. Nice. Uh, Jacinda, you're right in the middle of it. You're here in, in Central Australia in, in Alice Springs. You're, you're a Walpuri woman, and, uh, and and culture is very important to you. you you've just heard Glenn uh, raise the issue of culture because I, I, I see culture as important too. So how do, you, how do you work through some of those balances? Well, I mean, this whole issue is like a can of worms that no leader, you know, no government has ever wanted to go near or touch. I mean, it's been, been quite happily allowing uh, these asset managers, as, as James put it, um, who are largely um, non-Indigenous anthropologists, lawyers and administrators to really have entire control over 
uh, Aboriginal people's land and and the way I, the experiences that I have had, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I've grown up understanding and knowing that I'm a traditional owner, but it actually means nothing in terms of, um, you know, if, if, my, if someone like myself wants to uh, use any portion of the land that I'm a traditional owner for, uh, for the benefit of economic development, it's simply not going to happen. And there are many um, barriers that exist to um, being able to, you know, utilise our land the way it, it, it should be and, and as traditional owners ourselves. And so Glenn's very right in terms of the fact that we do need to... Um, we need to upskill our own people, most definitely. But even if we did have entrepreneurs uh, who were happy to go ahead uh, and utilise, you know, the resources that are available, it's not really available. There's no access really to land. I mean, the the, the fact that um, I, I, I'm a strong believer that we need to open up, have real, begin serious debate and serious conversation about how uh, we reform this current system uh, you know, which James has outlined, has has we've been doing the same thing over again, and nothing has been happening uh, as a result. And uh, what I would certainly in the Northern Territory, what I see is that these massive multi-million-dollar bureaucracies uh, uh, have on them a, a, an executive uh, of of individuals. You know, some uh, understand what governance is. Some um, some members are not fully literate, uh, don't necessarily understand uh, entirely what's going on in terms of the decision making, which allows for these non-indigenous uh, you know, uh, asset managers, the anthropologists and the lawyers and the administrators, to pretty much make the decisions, um, maintain control, and all they have to do is, is, is convince uh, individuals who are lacking in education and lacking in using the, you know, English language and understanding the uh, English language to convince them to agree uh, with whatever their plans are. And, and we have seen this happen over and over and over again. I mean, we, we're, we are actually um, told who we are as traditional owners by, and we can be denied uh, as uh, that we are traditional owners by these non-Indigenous individuals in these large bureaucracies. And and at no point uh, is, you know, there's, there's no level of transparency, uh, nor is there really uh, anybody that the, these organisations have to report to, uh, either that or, or, or governments aren't brave enough to insist upon a level of transparency, um, better transparency and, and a level of um, um, accountability, if you like. Uh, and, and traditional owners, while they are supposed to be accountable to traditional owners, in practice, it simply is not the case. And if traditional owners want any information referring to them and, and the land that they are traditional owner for, they, they can simply be outright denied it. And these are the experiences that, are, that, that I've had that many traditional owners in the Northern Territory have experienced. Um, you know, for a, a way forward, I believe, is certainly there are some fine examples like the, the Tiwi Land Council up in, on, on the islands. Because it is focused 
more on the language group itself. They have far more control over um, the opportunities that arise from utilising their own resources, their own country, their own bit of the land. Unfortunately, and even in traditional terms, when you've got an executive, these are individuals making decisions for other people's um, part of, you know, part of the land as well, but largely driven by these non-Indigenous administrators. There are so many, so many issues that everything needs to be placed out on the table and it requires a thorough, thorough review, um, if not a Royal Commission. Uh, look, I, I agree 100% with what you just said. The... What, what I see is that it's so important that we recognise the importance of the right base uh, 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 groups that were, were set up back in the 70s and the 60s and that and fought for land rights and were very successful in, in, in re getting parts of country returned to them, the land and sea and everything. And they've done a great job in that. But are we still, you know, I get this funny feeling we're sort of caught in two worlds at the moment. Are we still trapped in just the right thing which we still need to fight and argue over and we're and we're in and, and captive of those advisors who come from outside those communities who work them and we haven't fully uh developed the capacity within i've seen some places where the capacity is very very good but it's but it's very hit and miss across australia so have we built the capacity for those for those communities uh uh to, to you know get the expertise in that they so needed i'll give you an example uh, I, I go up to uh to northeast arnhem Land a lot because my brother went up there in the 1970s and and we have a very special relationship in in the, in the yungal country and um and we stay a lot at, at beniala with with jambawa now now jambawa has been fighting for uh, that i know of at least 15 years 16 years to get private home ownership uh he's been fighting that argument uh, and, and his clan is very strong about that how do we how do we get people to have their own private ownership dealing with the traditional ownership of land the problem they're having is that uh, the land is this is the thing i find interesting when you look you know you just mentioned the tiwi is actually a very clan-based land council but then you get the northern land council central land council and other land councils around the country they take up a lot of other people's clans a lot of other uh, uh, first nation groups and they and they and they tend to uh, and they don't, don't have that uh, traditional owner close relationship and they tend to act almost like gatekeepers and, and people overseeing the process and being in charge then actually the clan leaders, the, the, the clan groups who actually own the land, uh, uh, their voice uh, uh, controlling the, the what should be happening on the land. Jabberwah's one's a good example. Uh, the other one he had a, a big fight over was education. You know, the teachers used to fly in and fly out and, and a couple of days a week. And then he, uh, he said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, the problem is you, you haven't got teacher accommodation there. So he... he, he Jumbo is a, a, an international famous artist. He's got money. He flew to Sydney and he and he worked with a couple of uh, 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 builders down there. And they come back, but rather than uh, than actually through the Rotary Club, rather than them actually building it, they supervise you know and train people. You know, train people in plumbing, train people in in the, in electrical work, train people in building these schoolhouses. And when they built them. Uh, 
they they were banned because the because the Territorian government at the time said, well, uh, you know, this wasn't built uh, uh, you know, by the by the education department. This wasn't built and it had all these roadblocks they put in the way. And yet here was uh, a community that was taking power for themselves to actually get the teachers to live in the town to educate them, but also looking at how they could, you know, have, own their own homes and also. Uh, build some businesses within their communities, but they kept on having to answer to someone in Darwin all the time, and it just and it was just driving the frustration. Here we are, fifteen years later, and they're still struggling with that with that frustration. Uh, so you know, that, so have ha, has the structure, the architecture, kept up with the with Indigenous communities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, as they're getting more educated, as they're, they're growing and able to actually take control of their their uh, their clan areas, their First Nation areas, rather than having to report to Sydney or Canberra or to, to Darwin about what happens on their land. Yeah. Uh, I'd like you just to jump in. We'd like that, you know, it now. Yeah, no, it's no, no, around, no. Except we don't want it to be like uh, the presidential debate today. <laughs> we, want to, we, want to keep it, we want to keep it peaceful. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I might jump in there, was because I, there was an article, you know, you read headlines in papers, and, and I read one um, that just fascinated me, and it was the richest poor people on earth. And it was an article a few months back, and it was largely aimed at uh, uh, the Cape area where, you know, they'd received royalties for the extraction of resources and, and a mixture of other things, and they'd been unable to sort of utilise that uh, for the benefit of the community. And what had happened was this, the money had sort of had, had piled up, right? And I think it raised a couple of interesting things. One is sort of not using that money is not what I... I use as intergenerational wealth transfer, right, is that we didn't use it in the future. I think the onus is to, to use that wealth to actually try and facilitate the opportunities, right? And the other thing I thought it highlighted was the potential, the complexity, and, and certainly Jacinta was talking uh, about this too, the complexities of communal ownership when you're trying to sort of leverage a community asset um, and encourage individuals in, in a business sense or in an entrepreneurs to leverage that and their, their abilities to be able to do that when communal ownership is sort of front and centre. And, and I reckon that sort of rubs up against it a little bit. It was interesting to hear about Jungle and, and, and the house, right, and home ownership and, and the inability of Indigenous land, which is inalienable, so it can't be. But I go, when I bought my first house in Canberra, I got a 99-year lease. Everyone in Canberra does. Mm-hmm. So we can find it to work in other places, but we can't mm-hmm. seem to be able to take that thinking and that innovation to be able to sort of come up with a way to, to deploy that in the Indigenous sense where we can have both. We can unlock the Indigenous estate for mm. individuals mm. to provide them with an opportunity to accumulate assets and hopefully uh, when they drop off the perch, and we're all going to, is that uh, they're able to transfer those assets and that's intergenerational wealth and I hope my kids will get a, a, a leg up. So I think there's opportunities for us to take. There's examples around. I was also interested in your comments oh, about before rights. you go on. Oh. just before that, London's a good example too. The the Duke of Westminster actually owns most of London, and all and and they are on ninety nine year leases as well. well Sorry, go on. Say, no, no. Well, my point is, is that there's ways around it 
and we mm. find those mm. to be very economic and profitable. Tr- go and try and buy a house in Canberra. It works pretty well. They're not cheap, right? So <laughs> I, I, I think that, the, you know, it's just that innovation where we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We can find solutions and find a way through it. Um, I was interested around the rights and responsibility that you mentioned, Warren, and, and I get that, that we've got rights, our rights back to the land. I will push back a little bit on responsibilities, and, and certainly where in my state, in New South Wales, where I'm from, you know, there's thirty-five to 40,000 unresolved land claims sitting in a queue there and have been for 30 years. Now, that, that's a queue and, and those issues need to resolve, but by the same token, the fantastic people at the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, they've still got on with business, right, and they continue to get on with business where they try and leverage it. Could they get, do better? Of course they can and they want to do that. But I think that this, you know, while I don't want to, the issue I suppose is that we don't want to be sitting around and waiting for these things. What are we going to do in the downtime to actually foster that building capability or that investment in capability and really independence from potentially those asset managers that we, we took before where once they're in, they're very hard to get rid of, right? They sort of, um, they, they sort of entrench themselves, probably by doing a great job in most cases, I suspect, but because of the comfort that we, we can outsource that and get someone else to do it, that gives us the comfort that we don't really have to spend the money on ourselves um, to build that capability to have that independence. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you, James and uh, Jacinda, yeah, jump in yeah. any time. Uh, I just want to f- just I just noticed a, a comment just popped up that I just want to uh, uh, just to remind us to that uh, uh, about the South Coast uh, fishing rights, and also I know that's a that was a, an argument up in in Arnhem Land too in regard to the negotiations there. The people up the people ha- do have the capacity to be able to sit around that table and have that discussion uh, as well. So you know we can't forget that. Uh, you know, I think it's eighty percent of Northern Australian uh, land and water is controlled by uh, these clan uh, groups in 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 in, uh, in title. Uh, yeah, sorry, James and Jacinda. Coming back to this architecture issue, Warren, um, and and uh, and the other panel members, um, I think. Look, I mean, my view is that we. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think if you think about it. For the past how many decades um, we focus on rights prosecution but in the process we've attained a lot of those rights and suddenly we haven't moved into that sort of um, I suppose more market more entrepreneurial more sort of um, economic principles around how we leverage rights to enjoy them and that again this is about ownership so when you don't have rights you fight for them then you own them mm-hmm. so you have some ability then to leverage and sit as traditional owner to negotiate stuff at native title tables and whatever else but then the problem is that we haven't actually then started to move beyond that and start to think about what that means as a community, as individuals, and how we leverage those rights and actually develop our practice and behaviours around as owners. And in fact, many years ago, when I first sort of introduced some of these ideas to other um, individuals, um, I met a gentleman who just spent a stint in um, Saudi Arabia. And um, and he basically said to me, look, he said, the stuff that you experience in, in, in Aboriginal and Islander, you know, uh, communities is the same issues as the Saudis were going through, except the problem is is that um, their um, learned helplessness, if you like, coming back to this sort of phrase that I think has been used in your comments, Warren, and also by Noel, Noel Pearson as well, um, that learned behaviour, uh, uh, you know, that that is based on sort of welfare type thing, 
whether that's public or private money, whether the public is funding your welfare or you have private means to fund your welfare, it's the behaviour that's associated with it's actually bad. Um, you know, and 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 I think that's really the the the, the sort of um, the fundamental issue that we're we're sort of we're we're seeing is that it's actually the fact that um, we haven't matured those institutions. So what we have is a primacy of institutions that have actually managed things on our behalf, and we don't actually create any diversity in those institutions that operate in communities. And so there's no evolution of you know alternative organizations and other means of governance in communities and it's only the same type of governance structures that are really let you know they're, they're over incentivized to keep on doing the same thing they've always done they're not mm. incentivized to do anything else and mm. the classic problem you have is that you say to someone let's say you're a political leader and you say to someone sitting in a job you say your job is to uh, work yourself out of a job and train a local person so they can take your job over the reality is is that their job is to pay their mortgage and if we don't incentivize them and reward them to skill up someone local, then why should they? Mm. And, and, and so I think, you know, reforming these structures means that the type of incentive we've put in the structures currently actually allows people to stay and continue doing what they've always done. Mm. And, and, I, and I think we need to challenge it and we need to look at it and really think about it from the primacy of if we were to prioritize that Indigenous people not only own what they have, but they act like owners. It's the acting, the action associated with ownership. That that's the capacity stuff. That's behavior plus skill. Mm. Um, and every one of us, we know that when we're great owners over something, an asset, a car, or a home, or anything else, it's because we have the associated skill, but behavior. And if that behavior is not there, any asset you have would probably depreciate very quickly. Mm. So, so I think it's it's a it's it's a it's a human thing. Um, but it, it's something that we've never put as a policy and a strategy as a forefront to say it's a simultaneous thing that we do on top of the stuff that we do when we open up the opportunity. So we focus on liberating market opportunities for Indigenous people, but we actually don't simultaneously focus on the development side. Mm. So what happens is that when the opportunity opens up, we discover that there's an asymmetry problem. You have a problem. We don't have the capability. So then we move upstream. We spend more money. It's more complex trying to solve a problem and then trying to retrofit the solution into, a, in, into already a project that's moving. Mm. And I think that you need to run two streams. You need to run a human capital stream where you focus on developing skills and people. And that's a priority. It should be a priority. It should be a national priority. That should be a principle that government come out every day and say, if we're going to open up a market opportunity, we also prioritise that we will build and, and, you know, that the priority is about growing people. If we don't, then all we're doing is leveraging the opportunity to service the same, you know, need and never do any transformation. The community stays the same when we leave. Um, every time, you know, you look at you look at the billions of dollars that we invest into communities, and every time it's the it's the suppliers from the from the outside of those communities that come in, do the job, and leave, and the community remains locked, dirt poor, and they can't leverage it because they haven't got the businesses, they haven't got the skills to actually do it. But why is it we're saying the same thing we've done for the past ten years? Is because we haven't been very strategic in growing the human capital. Yeah. And and it's a process, but but you, to create a policy around opportunity means you also need a policy around prioritizing human capital, the skill, the owners. And if we don't prioritize that as a national policy, then it's never going to happen. That's right. And that, that's that's what our leaders need to be brave enough to push forward because you know, obviously those individuals who are who are, you know, their job is to pay off their mortgage, they are who 
uh, end up pushing back if um, when when you know if a leader suggests that well we need to we need to look at the the what it looks like to reform uh, you know the land rights act to to look at um, you know encouraging private ownership of land private ownership of um, one's home and those sorts of things there's there's always this argument um, from those who would stand to you know possibly lose their jobs, possibly become redundant. I mean, let's face it, you know, land council, these larger land councils, the Northern Land Council, the Central Land Council would become redundant if um, traditional owners did have the capacity to have to have their own land council and, and control their own lands. They would become redundant. So our leadership needs to be brave enough to step up and and make it about capacity building, make it about let's we're going to those, those next steps um, as well without without the fears of being you know told uh, you know, this is racism at play again or this is this is another attempt at land grabs and um, you know Aboriginal people are going to be done over and all those sorts of things we need to we need to have the opportunity to have serious um, conversations because as as we're seeing it, it continue it's it is another form of welfare i mean it's wonderful to be able to have native title agreements and those sorts of things but it's it's all based on rent seeking as opposed to building um you know entrepreneurship and, and building economic development and setting up people to um communities and individuals and families to become um no longer dependent on on you know on, on on the task of rent seeking but actually you know have the capacity to to um create jobs and 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 create their own little economies in their communities and those sorts of things um yeah we 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 really need to have that level of bravery in terms of um, our leaders because let's face it i mean ultimately it's it's uh, it's it's a federal government it's a, that are going to um, going to have to crack this egg open, if you like, or this can of worms. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you, uh, you mentioned a, a number of things there, and also, uh, uh, Glenn, you and I, have, we've attended uh, Gama, and this is one thing I do like about the Yungle. The Yungle, you said we shouldn't be just waiting and, you know, what was it, 30,000 land claims to be gone through in New South Wales? Is that correct? More. Yeah, so, it's more. Yeah. So we shouldn't be just waiting. We should be doing things. And one of the things I do like about my experience up there is they set up their own assembly, so their own governance process about how the clan leaders and how their people should be operating. And when they did that, and you're right, Jacinda, a lot of these things are about rent centric, uh, you know, stuff in the end because it's about oh, we get some royalties, we get some of these things. Good news is a lot of that's changing. What did the Yungle do? They actually took over the mine. Mm-hmm. They took over the mine, and they're and they're employing their people, and they're and they're and they're going ahead. They've set up, uh, they've set up, uh, 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 you know, a furniture and timber business, and that. Uh, they've set up, uh, uh, the, you know, the the fire stick, you know, alliance stuff, where they're where they're using that fire management to look after their country. Now, there's you're right, uh, uh, Glenn. There's a whole lot of things that we don't have to sit back and wait until legislation or some regulation or or something is changed. And his owners acting like owners, isn't it? Yes, they're actually they're actually saying we're the bosses, we're in charge, uh, and anyone who comes here, this is this is how you do business. 
and, and it's more than just acting like owners in the way that many people would view, which is, oh, we want the land back and and for our traditional hunting and practising, you know. You get, mm. that's, that's really important as well. But we can not just be the guys that turn up, or girls, that turn up in the high-vis gear and work at a mine site. We can actually have a mine site, right, and, and yep. work at that. Um, we don't have to ship. So I think there's something around the aspiration there that I was right. I think I wanted to drill in a little bit on the on the on this sort of the the skills deficit because you know one of the first sessions we done Warren we spoke about education. The truth is is that we should be almost unashamed about taking any wealth that we generate off um, our assets that we we have today and pumping it into education for our kids. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. If that if that that's a real priority that an improved education outcome can actually start to pull those levers that that we were talking about before, which is that you end up with people coming out that have the, the, the fundamental skill set to be able to do further studies and to take on more complicated ro- roles and potentially do what we were just talking about, move from being renters to owners and going, actually, we'll take care of this from there. So I, I think that that's one of the things that potentially we need to confront as well because there's a bit, there's you know, on one side you go, this is so important, we need to invest our money in our children's education, right? Mm. But we can't be is that... And we have to do that. And then the government goes, who's, that's actually their role to, to educate our kids and spend money on and, and have a good school. They put their money in the pocket and go, thank goodness we don't have to worry about this anymore. We need to find a way where potentially we enhance that. Um, but we start to actually co-invest um, in really the building blocks, which will make uh, the capability be there in the future. Um, and also the other most important bit is to have that link with an aspiration. I don't want to rent. All right? yeah. I, I want to act as an owner. Um, you know, usually those incentives come across pretty, you know, why you want to do that? Because I'm better off. I have more independence. I don't have to wait for a check from government. I'll, um, I'll, you know, I'll have more money because I earn the money and I live the life I want to live. And, and you know, really we're talking about self-determination there, right? Where you come Correct. and go as you please and do what you want. So I think that there's, you know, the, the ways that we, we talk about that, but I'm interested in, I suppose, the ability to be able to leverage the Indigenous estate for, for entrepreneurial activities. But if we're going to invest in things that are for more of the community benefit, can they be in things potentially uh, that are more transformational? And I'd argue that a, a, an uptick in education of our children would be transformational, you know, what are we going to spend our money on and what will give us the best bang for our bucks in the future? Yeah, Jacinta, that was what the Tiwi did. Mm. They, 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 they weren't happy with the education system that they were getting and so they actually then invested in, the, in Tiwi College uh, mm. to, take, to take ownership of the education of their kids and to, and to develop the, the capacity of them to, to run uh, their uh, businesses and, and run their community. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. They did that. I mean, I, I, I'm not too sure how successful that um, the Tiwi College has been, but certainly, you know, the drive to want to do those sorts of things are there. And, and, the, and the other thing is with anything, you know, you, you, you have to, um, once you have that drive, it's, it's okay to fail as long as you get back up and have another go. And, of course, that's what um, it means to be an entrepreneur. You know, you learn um, some of the most valuable lessons from, um, you know, making mistakes. And sometimes I don't think that, um, 
you know, that necessarily that in these situations, Indigenous Australians have not been allowed to learn from their mistakes, if you like, and 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 certainly, you know, we've seen it in bureaucracies. And if if, if um, an organisation fails, then uh, you know, you Oric comes in and sweeps them up and puts them back on their feet without sort of any um, real understanding of uh, learning from the situation um, or you know any level of accountability, so that. People can go well. You know what? We we shouldn't make those mistakes again. Uh, and you know, and the same can be said um, for for any for anything that Indigenous Australians are faced with, and certainly in this particular area as well. Look, I agree hundred percent with you on that because uh, I, look, I you know I work in the business world just like Glenn does, and and that and James, and, and I don't know anyone who hasn't had a failure. And I always remind people that there were. Uh, uh, well, who was it? Lachlan Murdoch and James Pack who had a bit of trouble with one tell, something like a billion dollar problem. <laughs> but they learnt and they grow. And, this, and you're right, Jacinta. We should be able to, uh, you know. And I reckon the best lessons in life come from, you know, some when you do fail, when you and you learn from that and you grow again. And and also, I, I believe we we, you know, we you know, I just saw Eddie Eddie Moore. I'd like to say good day to you, mate. I saw a little comment there. It is a we're talking about true self-determination here. We're, we're talking about to have true self-determination is not only just about having the land, it's about what you want to do. Uh, how, do you, how do you build the capacity for yourself? How do you, get, how do you ensure that you're going to educate your kids? I, I, I was very interested a few years ago when I was in Malaysia uh, about, uh, you know, how they were approaching things. I loved going to different countries and just seeing it. You know, they did in the 19, late 50s and 1960s, you know, just after one of their race riots, they have, to, they have race riots every now and again, is that uh, they got 26,000 kids and said, look, we're gonna, if we're going to build a nation here, then we're going to have to get our kids educated in the best place. They sent them overseas. They sent them to Sydney. They sent them to Melbourne. They sent them to New York and and Cambridge and all those places. That they did engineering and law and, and they did uh, business management and finance and studied all this. And they knew that some would, you know, when they get to New York, they love New York, so they'll stay. But the vast majority of them come back. And that helped in the development of some of, uh, some of their ideas of, about their community. Should we be looking at those type of things, you know, having the courage to do that and having the courage to, uh, you know, to, to, to let our kids run and, and fall over and, and, and skin their knees and, and do things. I remember this young bloke who came out of the mining industry. He did a trade. He's an electrician. He wanted to set up an elect electrical uh, a business within his community, but he, but working on five other communities around so he can make a bit of money. But, that he, but he was stifled by the, by the structure and the regulations of the land council to do that. And he, and he gave up. He just said, I, could, I couldn't do this. And so he went back to the mine. Mm -hmm. Do we need to be looking at these things and how do we break these things through? Warren, I, I, I might jump in there. In, in my heart of hearts, I wonder what's really holding Indigenous Australia back, whether it's a fear of failure in business, right, because if that's the case, we can sort of have that capability. But I think we also need is that a lot of Indigenous Australians, the life, the, you know, the, the, there's an element of complacency here, right, is that, you know, what they've got going on is, you know, it's okay, so do I really need to take these risks um, because um, potentially um, 
you know, I, I, I mightn't be successful. I, I'm interested more in, in what can we do further to get more people to actually be fearful of taking risks because I'm worried that we don't even get people to the starting line that are, that are even at that that place, you know, where, 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 you know, if our biggest concern is that we need to, you know, to work with, in, with our mob to, to make sure that they, it's okay to, to try and fail, I just wonder whether we've got enough of our mob even at that stage. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I've just got to do a little bit of a commercial here. Uh, look, I like to uh, thank uh, give thanks to the uh, Good Source uh, News uh, dot dot news for hosting our live stream tonight. If you want news and opinions, you can trust. If you want media that isn't compromised by anti everything nar narratives, you want the Good Source. Go to the Good Source just to hear from some of the best. Uh, conservative thinkers in Australia and New Zealand to hear independent voices on a free speech platform. Yeah, sorry, James, I interrupted you there. Uh, you're, you're, you're okay, mate. Um, Glenn, I, 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 I sort of agree with the comment. I, I think what's interesting is that, and this is my little take on your comment, I reckon that a lot of people are actually quite, they've got a massive risk appetite. I think it's because Indigenous people have been exposed to a lot of risks. It's just that they haven't been able to apply it into a context of a business. What I think is interesting is that it's probably the bureaucracy, if you like, or the system that, in the service ecosystem that manage Indigenous affairs that actually are the risk-averse ones that actually stifle any risk-taking because what they see is unfettered, you know, crazy ideas. Um, and, and, look, can I say this from my own experience, from discussions, from, uh, you know, whether you talk to political leaders and dealing with bureaucracies or you're dealing with individuals with great ideas that, with a you know with reasonable amount of you know I suppose commercial skills you can say he's dreaming but the reality is a lot of people have a lot of you know ideas the problem is is that I think organizations that have been there that have managed indigenous affairs so long remember the most important function they performed over the several decades is de-risking for government is that they perform a de-risking function they stop things from going bad but the problem is is that they also stifle entrepreneurship. They stifle all the risk-taking, and risk-taking sometimes means failure. But as we know, it also means great success and learning from, 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 from those lessons and then getting up and doing things. It's that stifling that then suddenly when people walk in, they, they kind of, you know, they've got these crazy ideas and we can't ground them and we can't take them through a journey. Um, and, and, and look, I'll spin it off in another way and maybe reflect on my experience dealing with bureaucracies. Bureaucracies, Let's say leaders turn up and they've talked to the community, they've got some really crazy ideas and massive aspiration about what they want to be able to see. That's all transformational because communities frustrated with what they're at, what they're experiencing, where they're at today, and they want to head head somewhere else. And they and leaders come up with some great idea. Well, the first thing bureaucracies will recognize is that these guys don't know how difficult that is. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, this looks like a risk and they're going to breach all these rules and blah, blah, blah. So what they do is they slow it down and they do nothing because what they've in fact done is they've done a, a risk assessment, they've done a judgment call on leadership, on, on, on the vision the leaders have set and said, these guys are crazy. What they should do is probably, and, and so what they, the, the resultant behaviour is they slow things down, leaders become more frustrated because then they're, 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 they're sort of just treading water and they're not moving towards what they see as an aspirational goal. And bureaucracies are basically protecting the public interest. And, and, and the problem with that is that nothing happens. There's a frustration and a clear deviation from community, leadership, 
and and the, the you know the, the the bureaucracy when in fact what i believe they should be doing is taking those ideas going out and saying okay so you want to get to here how realistic is that and by the way here are some lessons we've learned from somewhere else and start to frame the problem so that you start to ground the thinking and you start to build some really more consolidated narrative around what you want to do and so you're starting to marry the big aspirational stuff that community wants because they just want to get out of there right to the moon or bust remember the great thing about the rocket program in the us was that someone came up with the greatest idea and said we're going to go to the moon now for, the, for, for, for everybody else that was sitting in the room they would have thought that's crazy but what it did was the whole system responded by then saying okay well let's break it down and let's look at whether that's actually realistic so setting crazy goals or what seems to be crazy goals if we make a judgment call on it we'll never take the risk in venturing or doing any analysis but i think this is part of the problem in the in the sort of culture we're dealing with is that that estate problem that we talk about is that all of those individuals that are responsible in managing those estates are really the de-risking function that sits there that actually stops any any risk taking any great aspirational stuff that we're throwing out there and nothing happens whereas we should be testing stuff we should be developing designing testing and going back and saying look we, based on your great idea you want to be there in 5 years we don't think that's possible because these guys achieved in 20 but this is what the the methods are this is what steps are you know start to really frame the narrative work with leaders because leaders may not have the technical skills that you've got but they certainly own the have the ownership and the mandate around setting setting vision and 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 goals for their community which i think we should never stifle I would probably go as far as saying that um from my direct experience with with the with here in central australia with the obvious central land council that um the the risk that they would want to mitigate mitigate is the possibility of lack of control um that ben, you know the control benefits the organization in itself I I would love to get to the point where more um more traditional owners have the capacity to um to want to take risks and and think of opportunities beyond simply um relying on a welfare royalties payment um that they could be, go beyond that i see circumstances where um just individuals who want a level of openness uh and transparency that they're they're seen as then creating a risk for um the bureaucracy uh in itself and so individuals are then um ousted if you like um i i've i mean from the very personal level i have i have i believe that what what with this welfare structure that's currently in place um different family groups are vying for access to these royalties payments which is causing um which is contributing to um the family violence that goes on in these communities i mean those in these communities don't even get the opportunity to get to a point where they have a realization for themselves that they would like to capacity build to then go on to um work on creating opportunities in their communities i've i've personally stood um at a meeting and witnessed my grandfather's sister being punched um 
and as a result a day later was flown to Adelaide because she suffered a cardiac um, from a cardiac issue as a result of the stress due to this particular um, meeting which was held 10 kilometres outside of the community in the bush uh, without police presence because we all know that these meetings can get out of hand and there were individuals there who were under the influence of alcohol. Uh, on another occasion, she was told by uh, a white anthropologist to leave, to get out and leave the meeting and walk back uh, 15 kilometres in the summer heat uh, and she's a woman in her early 70s. Uh, these are the sorts of barbaric behaviours, you know, that go on that, that many in Central Australia and the Northern Territory, we don't even get to, the, we don't get the opportunity to, you know, find ourselves in a situation where we're, where I don't believe, where the um, executive is, is given the opportunity to be treated like um, a professional uh, board uh, body, uh, if you like. Uh, and it's all based on this idea that we should we should supposedly we've got to follow uh, you know this idea of culture and, and, and traditional uh, cultural values and all those sorts of things. Whereas the arguments that we're all talking about today is to build capacity, is to understand, uh, uh, be part of a modern world, um, and is in to empower Indigenous Australians to be part of that fabric and 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 understand that they have choice, that they have opportunity, that they have rights. And, like, it is so far behind the eight ball in terms of what's going on in, in you know, Central Australia and parts of the Northern Territory. Um, I'd love to get to the point of, of what, you know, what some of, some of us here on the panel are suggesting uh, as a starting place. I'd love for that. Um, you know, we need to most definitely get there. And without, you know... Um, this huge dependency that I see my mob um, being part of, which is really, it's, it's far more destructive for their lives than it is beneficial. That's, that's how I see it. I thought someone was going to say no, something. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, but when, sorry, James. Yeah, go on. No, sorry, mate. No, you go for it. Okay. Uh, look, uh, a lot of the stuff, this conversation we're having is, you know, is, is you know, how do you, and, and I'm sure, and be, being involved in business for a while, small business have, have similar problems in that, uh, you know, these are about governance issues. It's really about how do you free up these these things and, and people can, can just go and do things and get out and, and run businesses now. And, and, and uh, of course, um, uh, Glenn, you mentioned earlier that, we're so far behind the eighth ball because when you go into business, it is a risk. Anyone who tells you it's not a risk is is, is lying to you. And the idea that you can de-risk a fight, if there is such mm. a word, is, is just nonsense. Yes, you can manage some of your risk, but there is still a risk. It is a big thing. So how do we encourage people to get a, to, to get out there and take that risk and, and, and fight against uh, the, the bureaucracy that's been chucked on top of us. I think there's a couple of interesting examples at the moment. So prior to the government bringing in its Indigenous procurement policy, potentially a lot of businesses in the Indigenous estate we were over-dependent on resource companies, uh, extraction industries and that. You know, the last time I checked, Supply Nation now has over 2,500 Indigenous businesses since 2015, right? So I think what we're seeing people do is actually take advantage of the opportunities. Most of these are small businesses. There's some large ones, granted. 
But what I think we're starting to see now in Indigenous affairs, because of a really important policy shift, is that people not being over-dependent de- over on the Indigenous state as the sole enabler of economic participation. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing because I think those businesses will over time turn their attention to how they actually are able to utilise the Indigenous estate to the benefit of themselves and also their communities. So in addition to the levers that we can pull around uh, Indigenous education to deliver more you know, people with a, and a, a greater skill set, um, I think that there are some, some green shoots where we have seen governments actually and businesses start and I reckon it's just a matter of time before they look to leverage the Indigenous estate to their advantage. Glenn, on that point, um, you know, and probably sort of weaving it in with this narrative around governance um, and sort of collective, you know, collective decision-making or collective rights versus individual rights and so on, because I think that's a very core sort of principle, if you like. I just want to share something because there's some of the stuff that I've been doing in my own sort of some of the projects that I'm working on at the moment. And what's interesting is that at the very core of it is that what we have is, you know, British owner groups or, or Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people in any given situation might be leveraging, we all are leveraging a common right, i.e. We're, we're one of a traditional, you know, group of traditional owners. Um, 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 and, and, you know, let's say there's a big project that comes into on your country and you're leveraging it because you've got a right to, you know, you know in terms of a future act process to, to leverage that opportunity. But one of the things that I think is interesting is, Think from the from the example of a state. A state holds land and the minerals underneath it in trust for the common benefit, which is all of all of the people, right? Now, at the end of the day, what it does, it says, look, um, there's particular mineral rights over there that we know that is held in common on behalf of the entire population. But there are going to be some people that are going to have the know-how, the technical expertise, and also the finance to be able to put it together. So what the state does is says, okay, that common right, we can divest to that private party to then go and unlock it. But as a consequence of that, we put a price on it and you're going to pay us back 20% or 12% or whatever it is. So then the shared, you know, there's a shared benefit model, if you like, where we say the common good, you know, the common benefit is, you know, public benefit is worth 12% and the rest because that particular private proponent is going to take all the risk or, or most of the risk, they can they can get maximised, they can, they can get the maximum benefit out of that. And in some scenario, that could be a sliding sliding rule. It could be 20%, 80 but, but what I'm saying is that no rights that we enjoy is not exclusive. It's always a combination of, you know, rights that we share with the common and rights that we share exclusively for our own enjoyment. And I think it's the same thing with a prescribed body corporate or a native title body or a land council or anything else, is that they're actually holding, you know, it, it, I suppose, the interest of the common. What they should be doing is developing some of that to a point where they can then divest that to an individual in the group who can go and do a joint venture with somebody else to unlock that, but they put a price on it and say, well, you're going to pay back to the common a certain percentage, like a royalty, because that's a right based on everyone owning that right in the first place. But we just happen to, you know, we've developed it and and we've unlocked it. We've, We've handed that right over to you so you can leverage that you can get a private benefit out of it, but the, but then something has to be paid back to the common pool. So it it deals with this issue of conflict around this diversity in community. Some people are going to be privateers. They're going to be entrepreneurial. Other people are just going to be all about community culture and love and mung beans. Not a problem with that. 
But the issue is that ones that want to unlock opportunity and act entrepreneurially should be given the right to do so. But if those organizations don't develop those opportunities and then give the market op the, the opportunity to the market to say, okay, okay, Mr. Individual Traditional Owner who's an entrepreneur, why don't you unlock this? But here's the price. Here's the, here's the cost benefit. Here's the trade. But we're not doing, we're not thinking like that. Mm. What we do is we just stuck in this binary of, well, it's either for the public or for the common. I'm all about my community or I'm just about myself. Actually, we're all about both. Mm. We're about providing benefit to community as much as we are about <laughs> advancing our interest. Now, some people's interest might be purely to go fishing on country. Mm. Other people's interest might be want to own an aeroplane, mm. you know, and, and, and be an entrepreneur and have a significant economic asset, like a, a, an asset base. There's nothing wrong with that, whether you're Indigenous or not. But I think, you know, we, we've juxtaposed this problem as being one or the other as opposed to, I think, looking at it as a whole and saying, what are the rules? What are the things we're going to create to do to do this? But, by the way, the reality is, is that a lot of these opportunities can't be unlocked by these big institutions. They're unlocked by the entrepreneurs, the innovators, and we're just locking them out. Yeah. Uh, look, I agree 100% with that. You know, it's the... We got. Uh, we look at uh, history, and this is one of the things I like to do. I, I learn a lot from history. Is that if, you, and that's why I go overseas and I look, listen to see what other countries are doing, what other cultures are doing, and how they get through these things and that. And there's so there's a basic thing that happens, and that is that you must have the entrepreneur. You must be able to let the entrepreneur take the risk and to go out there and do things. And that then, and they do have a benefit back to the wider community, just in the simple process of, of uh, jobs and businesses and, 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 and everything like that. And I, I'm a great believer, it doesn't matter what culture you are, that the, the rules are the same. You've got to give opportunities and we've got to get, we've got to take, and we've got to get uh, words that, and 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 accept them. Risk is not a dirty word. Everyone who's everyone I know who's been successful takes a risk. It is not a dirty word. It's a great word, and you should be able to be rewarded for that. Uh, uh, profit is not a dirty word. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't made a profit that actually benefited their community. <laughs> you must be able to do that and then you're able to hire people and you're able to build your business and you're able to do things and we must be very proud of that and I w I'd love to see the day and, and I want to see that happen sooner rather than later that within the education system from kindergarten right preschool even right through to graduation and off to university which people should be learning about business and we, they should be learning about commerce and learning about those ideas and that and so that we can infuse them to have a go and get things done. Um, anyway, that's that's about, unfortunately, it's about the end of the, the show for us tonight. Uh, so, look, it's a great conversation. We'll continue a lot more of this. Uh, just a plug for next week's show, which is, uh, it's an interesting one. We've got three cartooners coming in, Joanna Lees, uh, Leek, uh, uh, Mark Knight and, uh, and Warren Brown. And, uh, and they're going to be talking about cartooning in the, in the age of woke. Uh, and so that's going to be a great co uh, a conversation to have. Uh, we're also, uh, and uh, then we'll be continuing with a few other things, uh, a few more business opportunities. Now, I'm doing a number of things during the week, which is about interviewing Indigenous business people and trying to get a, a lot of that up on, on, on my, uh, on my uh, Facebook page. 
And uh, if you want to help me produce more content like tonight's show and my Mundine Means Business series, join my Facebook supporters group. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can become a monthly subscriber and help me get my message out and help you get that message out. I've noticed a few names coming up tonight uh, 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 streaming uh, on, uh, on and, and chucking up ideas. I'm going to follow it up with you fellows, and we, we're going to try and get you on the shows as well to start looking at a, a lot of these things. Anyway, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, thank you, Jacinta, uh, or should I call you uh, your Excellency or something now that you're the Deputy Mayor, and uh, and uh, and also uh, James and Glenn for your contributions. And, uh, and we'll continue these conversations. And to everyone who come on board, thank you for that. Uh, we saw some of your comments that we'll be taking those on board and even maybe asking a few of you to uh, come on the show and, and talk about them. Okay, so thank you for that. Good Thanks, night. Everyone.